um, doing some fundraising as well and have contacts over there. We're going to put that out in our weekly uh, email this week, some, interest, uh, some information about that. If you would like to financially support, would be one small way, but certainly we can con continue to pray. And I should also mention that at the end of this service, we will have folks from our prayer team up here by the chalkboard. I believe Christy um, and maybe Joel will be up here, uh, Joel Dorr. And um, if you'd like to pray or even just join together and pray for the country of Ukraine together corporately, that will be available at the end of the service. So um, I'm not sure if you uh, have ever heard of Nichols Mine, Pennsylvania before or heard of an individual named Charles Roberts. But in October 2006, both that person and that uh, location became part of a really dark day in American history. Charles Roberts walked into a one-room schoolhouse in Amish country with a loaded gun and opened fire. He killed five young girls. He wounded a few more before turning the gun on himself and ending his life. Unfortunately, mass shootings were sort of becoming more commonplace around that time, but this was sort of a new level of horror and evil with the, the targeting of, of children. And uh, there was a funeral for these girls a few days later certainly a time of just incredible horror and loss. But then a few days um, later, after the funerals for the girls, the family members, some of the family members who had just lost their girls, they attended uh, another funeral. They attended the funeral of Charles Roberts, the gunman. They didn't attend the funeral to picket it or to protest it. Rather, they attended the funeral to comfort the widow of the gunman and his family members who were themselves mourning in quiet shame and pondering how such an event could happen. Later on, these same Amish, Amish families actually raised money to donate to the family of the gunman to help them in their time of need and huge loss. Where does such forgiveness come from? Today, we're going to continue our series uh, called Talking with God. We're looking at the prayer Jesus prayed called the Lord's Prayer. Some people have called it the Jesus Prayer. Today we're looking at the fifth petition or request, which centers on forgiveness. So as we start, um, I'd invite us to stand, and we're going to pray this prayer together. So why don't you stand? It should be on the screen, hopefully. There we go. Um, and we will corporately pray this prayer, and then we'll get into a little bit. So let's go. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. You may be seated. So the line we're looking at today is this line, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This, this request in the prayer has huge implications for all of our life, but it's really pretty simple. And so in that vein, I have a very simple outline that has two points. Number one, we need to be forgiven. Number two, we need to forgive. You should probably just go home, but I'll talk for a few minutes longer. Um, but let's start with the fact that we need to be forgiven. 
This is a simple request, but it's an explicit request for our own forgiveness. Some people that I was reading this week said this is the boldest request in the prayer and the boldest request anyone can make of God. What is Jesus asking us for, to ask for forgiveness from? The word is our debts. Our debts. Some translations also use the word trespass. If you've been around like church groups when people pray this prayer, this is when it gets awkward because some people pray debts and some people pray trespasses and like you jumble the words and stuff like that. But the word is either debt or trespass. Both of those words have sort of a range of meaning. But it's agreed that as one commentator I read this week said this, these words always denote something which is owed, something which is due, something which is a duty or an obligation to give or pay. The word debt or trespass, they're actually not really religious words in the original language, but they're commercial words, like pertaining to some sort of financial debt. So in this context, it means that what, what we're asking God to do is to cancel something, to wipe a slate clean, or to take a look at a bunch of business numbers that we owe and like erase them. So the point of Jesus telling us to pray to be forgiven, it's kind of obvious. All people need to be forgiven a debt that they owe to a holy God. That's really simple. It's sort of the crux of our faith, but I know that I forget it. I think sometimes we forget it, and maybe we come in here on a Sunday morning and like we clean up pretty well and we look okay, and so we trick ourselves into thinking that we're maybe not in need of forgiveness, or that maybe we once were in need of forgiveness, or like I'm not as much in need of forgiveness as, as that guy. But hopefully, when we come in here on a Sunday morning, or in your lives, when you encounter a holy God, you like learn some things about yourself. I want to look at just two brief instances in scripture where people were face to face with a holy God. Okay, there's a number of instances, but I'm going to look at Isaiah chapter 6, okay? This is the prophet Isaiah, and in Isaiah 6, we read about Isaiah having a vision of a holy God. This is like one of the sneaky, great passages in the Bible. It's like a really cool passage, and I'm just going to read some of it, and we'll talk about what it means for, like, why we need to be forgiven. So it reads this, in Isaiah 6, 1 through 4, it's on the screen. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, seraphs are um, angels, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. This, display, this is a really profound display of God's holiness and power. He's seated on a huge throne. He's got this big, like, some sort of, like, uh, Avengers coat robe thing that is, like, filling the whole temple. And there's angels flying around who are so powerful that when they speak, it creates an earthquake. But those powerful beings can't even look at, the, at God that they're singing about. They're shielding their eyes. We're not worthy of this God. But when they speak, it creates an earthquake. There's power in them, but they can't even look at the power of God. And look at what happens. What's Isaiah's reaction? Verse 5. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah doesn't, like, buddy up to God. He falls on his face and declares he is ruined. One translation says, I am undone, like my life has spilled out in front of you, Lord. I got nothing, because you're so holy. So in the presence of this God, Isaiah realizes how much he needs forgiveness. There is a vast difference between him and God that keeps him from being able to exist in true relationship with God. The same story is actually echoed in the New Testament, in the book of Luke, when Jesus comes to earth and calls his first disciples. I'm not going to read the story, but in Luke um, 5, Jesus shows up at the business place of Simon Peter, who's a fisherman who becomes Jesus' probably his best friend, one of his uh, key disciples. He shows up at this workplace of Peter who's been fishing all night. Peter hasn't caught anything. Jesus gets in his boat, says, we're going to go back out fishing in the morning. It's a bad time of day, and I'm going to tell you, the non-fisherman, to the commercial fisherman, where to fish. Peter does it, and such a huge amount of fish comes into the boat that the boat begins to sink. And this is Simon Peter's reaction in Luke chapter 5, verse 8. We'll put it up on the screen. You could read the whole story later in Luke 5. It's awesome. When Simon Peter saw this, the catch of fish, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Peter is not in the throne room of God like Isaiah was, but in the person of Jesus, the throne room of God has come to earth. And Peter's face to face with it. And he's not thinking about how good he is. He's not like reading his resume to God. He's thinking he is in deep need of forgiveness. The thing is, is the more that we see God's holiness, the more it should reveal our own sin and our need for forgiveness. I'll illustrate it this way. Uh, we purchased our house uh, in like 2009, and some of, some of you have purchased a house, some of you have not. Um, but we had to sign a million papers. If someday you, you purchase a house, you, you have to sign a lot of papers. And one of them was called the Truth in Lending document. Okay? Now I remember thinking, oh, we got a great deal on this house. We bought at the right time. We got a good interest rate. We're feeling pretty good coming into the signing. Like we're so smart with our finances. Then they pull out the Truth in Lending doc. That tells you, based on the interest rate, if you paid off the whole loan over 30 years, how much money you would have to pay for that home. And let me tell you, I was undone by the number because it was not a good deal. It was a lot of money. It was a huge interest rate. And they're trying to show you like, yeah, like to borrow a house, like this is a big deal. It costs a lot of money. Maybe you didn't get as great of a deal as you thought you did. I think sometimes we come to God thinking he's got a great deal in us. And then when we stand face to face with a holy God, it's like we pull out the truth in lending doc on our lives. And we see the full weight of our sin and our deep need for forgiveness. But here's the thing. This isn't like supposed to feel bad about ourselves because the reason we're praying the prayer is God loves to forgive. That's why we're praying this prayer. So our debt was too great for ourselves. We needed someone else to pay it. And I think sometimes we might think that God's like a nice guy who just looks at sin. He's like kind of sweeps it under the rug, looks the other way. But if he just did that, that's not really forgiveness, and it's certainly not justice. Humanity owes a great debt to God, you and I, and corporately, and we don't really want God to just sweep our sin under the rug. 
Because I don't think we want a God who looks at everything Joel just described in Ukraine, that injustice, and says, I'm just going to sweep it under the rug. I don't really care about that. That's not a big deal. We do want a God that cares about injustice. We generally want a God who cares about other people's injustice, not our injustice. But he cares about all injustice. And so instead of just sweeping it under the rug, God forgives us by taking the injustice of the sin, the sin of the world, on himself. So in Jesus, on the cross, he died in our place for our sin. And when Jesus dies on the cross, he utters another phrase, a three-word phrase, that also has to do with debt cancellation. John 19, verse 30, this is the John account of when Jesus dies. It says this, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit or died. It is finished. Another way to translate that would be, it is paid. Meaning, in his death, Jesus paid the debt for us, for you, for me, so we can stand before God fully forgiven. Yes, Isaiah is going to fall at his face because God's so holy, but Jesus says, stand up, Isaiah, you're with me. You're with me. You can stand before the Lord. Uh, Nick, in the middle of the singing, read this great passage from Psalm 103 that I want to touch on. We're going to read Psalm 103, 10 through 12. It'll go up on the screen. It says this. He, God, does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. That's sin. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Friends, God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He removes our sin from us. How far? As far as the east is from the west. All right. We're going to do an existential geographic exercise right here. Okay, here's how it's going to work. On a globe, that's a round spherical object that used to be housed in classrooms that would show you where things are um, before you got Google Maps or Waze on your phone. On a globe, there are two accesses, I think, north, south, east, west. Okay, there's north and south and east and west on a globe. There's probably other accesses. Don't talk to me if you're a geography professor or teacher, okay? Um, the psalm could have said, as far as the north is from the south, so far has he removed our sin from us. It could have said that, but it doesn't. It says, as far as the east is from the west. Think about this, okay? If you're going north, you're traveling north, you will eventually hit the North Pole, flip over it, and then you will start going south. But if you're going east... There's actually like no similar access point. You could literally go around the world always going east. I, th I think, okay? You will not start going west again. You will always go be going east. In other words, the east is existentially opposite from the west. In other words, God has existentially removed our sin that far from us in the forgiveness offered to us on Jesus on the cross. Not north-south, east-west, people, like that far gone. So the boldest prayer we can pray is answered because the one who taught us to pray, he paid the debt himself. One commentator put it this way, he, Jesus, came to pay a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we cannot pay. See, we stand before a holy God with the same level of guilt 
that if Charles Roberts had lived and he had stood before those family members, he had a lot of guilt towards them. We stand before a holy God with that level of guilt. But we're extended incredible forgiveness in the person of Jesus. And I think the families who attended that memorial service understood this, which is why they could offer Charles Roberts that forgiveness. So that leads to the second part of the prayer. This will be a little shorter. But the second part of the prayer, remember the prayer, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So the second half, we also are called to forgive. At the face value, we're probably more cool with the first than the second. Like, we love to accept forgiveness from God, but the second half is sort of disturbing. Like, that like, puts an onus on us that if we receive that forgiveness, we should extend that to other people. What's Jesus saying here? Here's a thought. If we don't really, if we don't forgive other people, we may not fully understand God's forgiveness if we don't forgive other people. Later on in Matthew, Jesus tells a parable that illustrates this point. I'm going to read it. This is a story that Jesus told. In Matthew 18, it's called the parable of the unmerciful servant. This is how it goes. Follow along on the screen. It's a great story. It's a longer passage of scripture. Think of it like you're listening to a story, okay? Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents, that is millions of dollars, was brought to him. Since the man was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a few hundred denarii, a few hundred bucks. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus is not always cuddling up with sheep. He'll bring it. He'll bring some noise. That might be a little bit uncomfortable. I don't like every word he said. But there's a call to forgive people that's pretty radical. And the story kind of makes you mad, right? The dude has a million bucks. If you owed someone a million dollars, that's a rough situation, okay? And someone's like, hey, just for, I, oh, that's gone. Don't worry about that million. And then he goes out and is choking a guy over like a hundred dollars. It's really unjust, and Jesus is drawing the point out. This didn't really happen. It's like, but he's a master of storytelling, and he's trying to prove a point. Jesus is kind of trying to say, like, you owed God a million dollars. 
So when we don't forgive other people, I think we're kind of in one of two places. One, we might not realize the full extent of our sin. We might not realize the million of millions of dollars that we owed God. Or I think we might think that the way we really achieve forgiveness is by like being a good person, doing good works, kind of doing penance like paying up or something like that. So we think like other people, if someone's wronged me, they need to like pay up before I forgive them. God didn't ask us to pay up. Jesus paid up. So that's kind of the, the thing. Like that's why like if we understand the forgiveness, then hopefully it'll lead to us forgiving others. Now I realize this is hard, okay? I'm not like, like some of us, maybe you're in this room and you've had like some really grave injustices done towards you. Like unspeakable things have, have happened to you. And so I, I realize it's not like a flippant, well, just forgive. Like that's, that could be very, very difficult. And I will say that just because sins are forgiven in God's economy, that doesn't mean in our current worldly economy that there aren't consequences for sins. But the hope is that as we grow in Christ, we would become people that are quicker to forgive. I'll say it in two more quick ways. An early follower of Jesus, an early like church father named John Chrysostom said it this way, to ask forgiveness from God as a great benefit and then to deny the same to others is to mock God. That's kind of a strong statement. But like we're mocking him if we don't forgive other people. I'll put it another way. I think this is kind of a cool thought. I think we are um, never more like Jesus than when we truly forgive other people. I think that might be our opportunity to be the most Christ-like. Not that that means God loves us more or something, but like that's how we really display his love in our lives. And I think forgiveness flows from an understanding that we owed God millions of dollars. 1 John 4.19, it's a great truth of scripture. You should memorize this verse. It would not be hard. We love because he first loved us. Our love for others flows from God's love for us. And you could take out the word love and put a lot of other words in there. We forgive because he first forgave us. I think the reality, friends, is when we forgive others, that's a blessing to us. Like instead of holding on to bitterness and anger, we release it to God. I'll give a few practical implications for your life, and then I'll share a great story about forgiveness. Practical Consideration number one, forgiveness is beautiful, but it's not automatic. It's a, it is a little bit of a two-way street because it involves repentance. Like Jesus' forgiveness is offered to the whole world, but you have to repent. You have to respond and accept it. A few weeks ago, we talked about the petition and the prayer of thy kingdom come, your kingdom come. And we talked about the revolution of turning our lives over to God. We are walking this way and God tells us, hey, turn around and walk into my, my world, be in my kingdom. When we do repent, we're actively like putting ourselves under the forgiveness of God. When we're not living in repentance, we're living like sort of under God's wrath, really. So here's a question for you. Have you accepted God's forgiveness by repenting and following Jesus. Here's another practical consideration that is going to be very encouraging to you. You will sin this week. You will sin today. You will sin before you leave this room. Instead of allowing the sin to define you, 
or make you feel guilty or ashamed, pray this prayer and then marvel that God forgives you. He's wiped your slate clean. To quote from the prophet Isaiah again, Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are red as crimson. They shall be like wool. God wipes the sin clean. Practical consideration number three. Someone will hurt you this week. Someone or something will hurt you, disappoint you, damage you, maybe severely, maybe in a minor way. Consider asking God to help you forgive that person. If it's like, if there's a, there might be a large issue where it's very hard for you to forgive someone. I would just say, God, help me with that. Because I think when we're able to forgive, it sets us free from that bitterness. I'm going to close with a story about forgiveness from a woman named Corey Tenboom. She was a Christ follower who lived in Holland during World War II. She lived under circumstances maybe not dissimilar from what Joel is describing that his friends are experiencing in Ukraine. Nazis are rounding up Jews, sending them to concentration camps. Corey Tenboom and her family sheltered and hid Jews in their home to protect them. They were captured. They were all sent to concentration camps. Corey Tenboom and her sister Betsy were sent to an all-women's concentration camp called Ravensbrück. Her sister Betsy died in the concentration camp during the war. Corey Tenboom survived and was, was released when the Allies freed Europe. She then spent her life, be she became an author and a speaker. And in 1947, just two years after the war, she was giving a talk on forgiveness in Germany. And I'll pick up the story with the closing line of her talk and then kind of what happened afterwards. This is the closing line of Corey Tenboom's talk in 1947. She said, when we confess our sins, God casts them into the deepest ocean and they are gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947, so people stood up in silence, grabbed their things, and left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It all came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking past this man naked. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment of skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man approaching me had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, his hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein, how good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among the thousands of women? But I remembered him. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he said. I was a guard in there. No, he didn't seem to remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fräulein. Again, the hand came out. 
will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day had to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message is that God had forgiven me. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. This is interesting. Since the end of the war, I had started a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were also able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness and did not forgive remained invalids. It was as simple and horrible as that. And still I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. She actually goes on, even in that writing, and talks about how, hey, you would think that now I'm like really good at forgiving people. She's like, I still have, have trouble forgiving people that gossip against me or lie about me, even though I forgave this guard that was part of like killing my sister. So, you know, it could be easy kind of to say, like, the, the closing thing could be like, hey, we need to be like Corey Ten Boom. We need to, like, learn how to forgive. And that's, like, a really inspiring example of a very Christ-powered level of forgiveness that most of us probably will not encounter. But I think in actuality, the lesson is be like the guard. Admit our deep need of forgiveness and ask not Corey Ten Boom, but Jesus for forgiveness. And when we've really experienced that and we live in the freedom of God's forgiveness of us, then we can point others to Jesus by extending that same forgiveness that's been extended to us. Forgive us our debts, Lord, as we forgive others their debts. Let's pray. Holy God, thank you.